Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from PGM headquarters in Newark, New Jersey, a lovely glass lead certified building in the heart of Newark. And right now, we want to turn our focus to technology and the ways that it's disrupting a whole host of different uh, industries, as well as how people can invest in it. And we're joined, uh, I'm happy to say, with Timer Hyatt. He is Chief Strategy Officer for PGM. Um, I came in and I saw this beautiful glossy magazine, The Technology Frontier. What is the point of, what, what sort of do you want to convey to people by giving a sense that we are on the cusp of a technology frontier? You know, I think, uh, Lisa, at the moment, technology is, is sort of at peak hype, but it's really around a narrow set of stocks. You know, we've talked a lot about them over the last two weeks with the volatility. But what we wanted to convey was that for long-term investors, the technology opportunity has actually moved beyond just the fangs and Silicon Valley venture capital opportunities. And it's really about the technology users now where the next wave of investment opportunities will be created. How will companies in everything from the media sector to payments uh, to transportation, how will they use technology and how will they embed technology in their, in their processes? And that's where the next wave of winners and losers will be created. Now, this technology frontier white paper is part of a series of white papers talking about mega trends. And they're going to be winners and they're going to be losers. And you outline some of those. And I'm wondering if you could just go through them, particularly when it comes to the losers, because it gets pretty specific. I was surprised that, for example, transit hubs are perhaps going to be losers in the technology revolution. Well, Pim, one of the key things we point out is don't just go after the winners. And we should talk a little bit about how you sort of see who the technology winners are. But there's also real obsolescence risk in portfolios. And the pace at which technology is changing is unprecedented, which means that those risks are happening really quickly. Uh, so one good example is in New York, where the price of a taxi medallion has gone down from, what, 1.2 million at the peak to kind of two, 300,000 now. Really rapid disruption. And one example we have that's coming around the corner is in the automobile industry. So you have electrification at the one hand, uh, and on the second you have automation, kind of in vehicles that will kind of be autonomous. And we think that'll be pretty disruptive. I mean, one example in addition to the one you mentioned was uh, parking spaces. We have hundreds of thousands of prime real estate that is devoted to parking spaces and garages. And in a world where you will have autonomous vehicles and you'll have people sharing uh, rides much more, there's just a massive opportunity for how that will be repurposed and how flexible are garages to be repurposed for new real estate uses. So how does one invest in that? Uh, you work with your real estate asset managers and really understand that technology, again, is not just about equities. It's not just about Silicon Valley venture capitalists. But you can access technology through real estate, through infrastructure, through fixed income. It really is pervasive. So it's really working with the entire team of asset managers, your in-house experts, and making investment decisions that straddle the entire portfolio aren't just limited to this tiny niche of just the formal technology sector. You also make a point of contrasting the digital adoption rate of various countries and say that it is not necessarily geared towards GDP per capita. Explain that a little bit. Uh, 
So one of the things we see is in the productivity data, you don't see rapid increases in productivity, even though many of our personal lives are improved by all the apps we now have. And we think the real secret to that mystery is a lag. Technology in the 1990s when you had the PC revolution and now again will lag the obvious near-term gains that we see in our daily lives by 10 years in terms of when it's reflected in the GDP and productivity data. So you're at a point, uh, which is what we try to show with the Digital Adoption Index, where 60% of the world is still offline. When the rest of the world, when the broader set of emerging markets also adopts kind of wireless and internet technologies, you'll see another rise in productivity that still hasn't been captured. And we talk a lot in the report about that wave of opportunities that's yet to come. And it goes way beyond China into many other emerging markets that are less well-traversed by investors. I have to wonder where the developed world versus the developing world will stack up with the sort of race to technological improvement, because there's sort of a belief that when there already is infrastructure in place, it's harder to refurbish it and bring it up to the modern standard. So in some less developed areas, you're seeing the increase in technology come up much faster, and they're actually much more capable of adopting to some of the newer uh, concepts and technologies out there. Do you think that the developed world will lag beyond behind in a way that perhaps people are not expecting? It's a great question. I think one of the features of this current wave of technological change is how it's really gone global. So you've had already, because of global supply chains, this reverse innovation where ideas are coming from India or Kenya back to the US and Europe, where you have uh, China, for example, now being a leader in uh, certain parts of AI and facial technology. Uh, and the speed at which code travels, the speed at which you can innovate in another country, is very different from old-fashioned uh, foreign direct investment where you had to move a bunch of people to an emerging market. So we absolutely see technology innovations coming from more places more quickly than in any previous wave of technological change, absolutely. Do you see that the way companies are organized financially is old-fashioned? And the reason I ask that is because you say in the report that companies that invest in research and development those are the ones to pay attention to. But research and development is not considered an asset on the balance sheet. It's a cost. Is there going to be some way to change that? I think it'll be quite critical for winning companies. So we talked about obsolescence risk, but the other side of this for investors is what are the alpha-seeking opportunities by gliding to the winners. The winner takes all companies that already achieve scale. And I think uh, having a chief financial officer who sees uh, how the investments in technology, R&D, and development, rather than just sort of maintaining what's there is key, uh, having a senior chief technology officer who's part of the senior leadership team, uh, investing in technology, R&D, doing technology-driven M&A, that'll what will drive future winners in this sector. Are there specific companies that you think are going to be winners that are not recognized widely as the future winners? I think uh, beyond the, the big obvious names, it'll really be about looking at the next sectors. And I think the sectors that we focus more on as the next wave is the payment sector uh, and then uh, definitely the automobile sector. I think much further down the path would be sectors like construction and healthcare, where there's a huge room for technology improvement, but it still weighs off. And when you mentioned uh, technology and that healthcare sector, do you think that the government is going to spur that, or is it currently making it more difficult? I'll give you about 30 seconds. I think it's both the public and private sector. We've all gone to a doctor and seen that they don't have the records from our last visit to another doctor. There's just huge opportunities for technology across both the public and private sectors. Timer Hyatt, thank you very much for being with us. The Chief Strategy Officer for PGIM.
We are broadcasting live from the PGM headquarters in Newark, New Jersey. PGM is the global investment management business of Prudential Financial. And Lisa, I know one topic that's always exciting to talk about always. is real estate. Yes, absolutely. Real estate. Mm-hmm. And Kathy Marcus joins us now. Kathy Marcus is the global chief operating officer and the head of U.S. business for PGM Real Estate. Nearly $70 billion in assets under management. Thank you very much for being with us and thank you for having us here. Thank you, and thank you for saying that real estate is exciting. <laughs> it is. It is ex- Everybody wants to talk about real estate. Especially me. Yeah, well, that's why we have you here. Um, I know that you know, PGM has a global outlook. You have properties all over the world. But let's start in the United States and maybe just define PGM's strategy because you offer finance, you do financing for real estate, and you also own properties outright. Just give us a little hint of what your remit is. Sure. Um, Well, within PGM Real Estate um, specifically, as you mentioned, we have $70 billion of assets under management, and that is primarily in the equity space, and it's all around the globe. We operate in the U.S., in Latin America, in Europe, and in Asia. We invest in all the major property types, office, apartment, retail, industrial, and then in others that might be considered a bit more niche, including um, senior housing, hotel, and self-storage. So I want to talk about one of the biggest issues of this year, which is the concern that all of the money coming into the U.S. and into the real estate market from China is slowing down because of the trade tensions and that basically there's going to be a sort of deflation in valuations because of this exodus of foreign money. What have you seen on that front? So that is very true, that about um, the uh, amount of Chinese investment in U.S. real estate markets is down by about 70%. Other investors, non-U.S. investors, have um, come in to sort of fill that gap, and among those investors are investors from Singapore, Australia, um, and Canada in, in, in particular. And in terms of you know sort of the overall picture of investment in U.S. real estate um, on behalf of non-U.S. investors, um, you know there's a long-term average that about nine percent of investment in U.S. real estate markets is coming from non-U.S. investors, um, and and we're at twelve, so we're still you know above the long-term average, but um, you know investors from one particular country of China, clearly that has gone down. I think that that has um, has manifested itself um, more in some markets than others. The Chinese favored certain markets, New York, San Francisco, those, you know, types of what we would call a gateway market. Um, But there's still lots of other non-U.S. interest in uh, in U.S. real estate. One headwind that some non-U.S. investors have been facing in U.S. real estate is that the cost of hedging the U.S. dollar um, has gone up, and that you have seen some evidence of, um, you know, certain investors who are more likely to hedge, um, German investors in particular. Sometimes you've seen a little bit less activity from them. I wonder if you could speak to the issue of the value of real estate located near expansion of infrastructure projects, expansion of public parks, public venues such as the High Line in New York and redevelopment areas, because PGM has been very active in almost twinning its investment thesis with those kinds of general improvements. Yes, that's been a real strategy of ours, um, and in particular around transit. And um, transit-oriented development, particularly in the multifamily space, 
in the U.S. has been something that we've been very focused on. And part of that has to do with who the renters are for those types of projects. And interestingly, if we had been talking about this 10 or 15 years ago, our prime renter for urban-type apartments would have been all young people. And now you're really seeing much more of a barbell. There's lots of empty nesters and baby boomers who are renting in those types of projects, too. And both of those populations... They like transit. They like to be able to walk to their local coffee shop or walk to a movie or walk to lots of restaurants. And they also um, both like a lot of amenities. They want um, you know, a golf simulator. They might want a saltwater pool. And so a lot of the development, which we've been involved with and others have as well, is really in this class A space. And, and that's really worked out quite well because of the demand in that space. But I think we all know that there's you know, really almost a crisis of affordable housing in the U.S. And so you know, the fact that so much development has been in this Class A space really means that there is an entire part of the population that is underserved in terms of apartments. And that's really something that we have been focusing on lately. That's interesting. Um I want to I want to go there actually because I was going to move to senior housing, but I want to hear how you're planning to serve that population, given the fact that the actual uh, material costs are increasing and labor costs are increasing, and it's just not that profitable to build housing that you can't sell for for higher prices. You are correct there, and and um, you know construction costs have gone up precipitously in the past year in particular. So our strategy has really been um, that we've been acquiring existing assets. In the past year, we've acquired about 20,000 units of what we're calling workforce housing. And the strategy there is to acquire existing assets, but to do a little bit of upgrading and a little bit of renovating there. But the, the key to that strategy is to have the discipline not to over-improve. Because if you go in there and you spend so much money upgrading and you go into the granite countertops and all of the amenities, you've just defeated the whole purpose because now your target renters can no longer afford the project. So it's a fine balance between keeping it competitive within that workforce housing um, space. So what is workforce housing? We consider that to be essentially class B type assets. They tend to be um, constructed in a garden style project. And they tend to be located in the southeast and southwest, where you have really sort of um, uh, the uh, phenomenon of it being affordable because of where it is and, and because of its age. The cycle in real estate, has it been repealed? And are investors nervous about where they are in the cycle? We're clearly late in the cycle, and that's something that um, everyone is thinking about and talking about. And therefore, some of the strategies that we've been focused on are really tailored to where we think we are in the cycle. And you know, we just talked about Class B apartments, workforce housing, senior housing is another example. And really, the themes here are, um, are strategies that are underscored by demographic or societal trends and things that we see coming that are not as um, tied to the economic cycle. Although there's been a lot of investment in senior housing, and there was just a front page article in the Wall Street Journal talking about how uh, a lot of seniors aren't going to senior housing so quickly because they're actually staying healthier for longer and being independent. How do you address that? It's true in terms of the um, what we see in our, in our properties is that the average age of the senior housing resident has gone up tremendously. Um, but there's still a demand and there's, you know, what people refer to as a silver tsunami that's coming, right? And, um, you know, the demographics show us that in uh, the coming decade, three times as many people are going to turn 75 
as have in the prior decade. And so, you know, the current stock of senior housing in the US, two thirds of it is over 15 years old. And so you can see that there is a need for more development there. I would agree with you, there are some markets that maybe um, got ahead of that, um, you know, supply demand dynamic, but overall it's a very, very compelling thesis. And PGM Real Estate has invested in senior housing for the past 20 years. It's something we've always liked, but the dynamic is more compelling now than ever. Kathy Marcus, thank you so much for being with us Thanks and uh, talking about this issue that both Pim and I find fascinating, and that is real estate. Kathy Marcus, Global Chief Operating Officer and Head of the U.S. Business at PGM Real Estate. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg Markets. Lisa, after the close of trading today, we will get the results from Apple. And who other than John Butler, our senior telecom services and equipment analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, who other than John Butler would we have to comment on it? Absolutely nobody. Exactly. All right, John Butler, what should investors look for in the commentary when Apple reports results? The first thing I would look for, Pim, is any commentary on the latest phones. So... To me, this latest generation of phones, are, they're all based on the iPhone X design. They're a bit of a feature upgrade. There's a lower, lower cost version of the iPhone X out there called the iPhone XR or XR as some people call it. And in my view, this sort of sets the stage for iPhone growth over the coming three to five years. So. I want to hear how well those new devices are resonating with consumers. And, you know, if you wind the clock back a year, Tim Cook gave us some good color on how iPhone X was doing. He made comments that it was the best-selling phone in every week since it had been launched. I'd, I'd love to hear similar commentary like that this year. The other thing I'm focused on is services and what the growth outlook looks like for the services business. Well that's actually where I wanted to go because once upon a time, a long, long couple of months ago, uh, I'm, we were discussing how the super cycle in smartphones is definitely plateauing, if not declining. People who have a smartphone, who want one, have one. Uh, so the saturation point is pretty high. I'm just wondering, I mean, are people not focused on that anymore? Or I do think that Apple is going to try to emphasize services and the revenue that they get from that over the iPhone sales. So Apple is doing two things. Number one, the iPhone has grown to really dominate the sales mix. So in a very good quarter, it's 65% of sales. In sort of the slower quarters, it's a little less than 60%, but it's a higher percentage of revenue. They've been trying to grow that services business to diversify their overall mix and lessen the reliance on iPhone growth quarter in and quarter out. And it's been working well. My concern is that services don't continue to grow at 30% quarter in and quarter out either. And so I'll be looking very closely to see how services growth is doing, what's new, what might be on the drawing board there. And then on the iPhone side, I like what they're doing, which is they're shifting a reliance on driving high unit sales of iPhone to driving higher priced iPhone sales. So, you know, revenue is a function of units and price. They're now focused on price, not units. Two years ago, three years ago, it was all about unit sales and less about price. 
John Butler, is Apple on track to do $100 billion in gross profit for the year? I can't comment on the specific numbers. Uh, the regulators would hang me for that, but um, they're doing well, Pim. You know, Pim, what are you they're... trying to do to him? Really? <laughs> well, I, you know, well, you can tell me that, uh, that Apple revenue on an annual basis is over $250 billion. Yes, they are. That is a staggering number. It's incredible. This really is a very special company in many ways. And the iPhone really was an iconic device. And it continues to sell well for them. Um, and, you know, the beauty of it is you now have this huge installed base out there. And that's why they're focused on services. They want to monetize that installed base now that the overall category really has matured, we just got the latest numbers from IDC on global, on the global uh, smartphone market, pardon me, and it really is a low single-digit growth market overall. And so okay. that affects Apple and every other vendor in the market. So I also remember once upon a time we were talking about innovation out of Apple and the fear that Tim Cook couldn't replicate anything in the Steve Jobs era where it was constant innovation and disruption of the entire industry. If that's truly the case, which it seems to be, if the iPhone really is going to be the main product of the company going forward, then is it overpriced given the fact that it might not be the growth story that it has been in the past? Well, again, it's morphing into more of a services and even a subscription story. If you look is it at valued the, as one? Uh, again, Lisa, I hesitate to comment on valuation, um, but I think it reflects Apple's still robust growth outlook. You know, the the iPhone this year, as old as the iPhone is, it's ten years old. iPhone revenue grew double digits last quarter, so. You know, they're finding new and unique ways of growing that product line, which is buying them a lot of time to transition into other categories. And, mm. you know, you alluded to other products, and they really have not had that. They haven't pulled the rabbit out of a hat again, as, as I like to say. Yeah. They did it with the iPad. They did it with the iPod. And they certainly did it with the iPhone. Right. I'm not sure they have anything left there per se. But again, diversification is their friend there. So yeah. the iPods have done well. Uh, the home home pods will yeah. maybe do well there. So, so we'll have to see what we'll they can do. We'll have to John, see. Exactly. John Butler, we're going to have to leave there. Thank you so much for being with us. John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, telling me and Pim how much we're going to have to spend on our family iPhone budget. It is our pleasure to introduce Nathan Sheets, the chief economist for PGM Fixed Income, but he's so much more. Uh, previously, uh, he had uh, a storied career at the U.S. Treasury and also for 18 years served in a variety of positions with the Federal Reserve Board. Sir, thank you very much for being here, and thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here, and welcome to Peachum. Well, we appreciate it. And, you know, just to put a little bit into context, I understand that uh, your dissertation, your doctoral dissertation uh, supervisor, one of them, uh, was one Stanley Fisher. And I'm wondering if you could comment, first of all, on the Federal Reserve's current policy but put it into the context of our political back and forth with President Donald Trump having said pretty clearly that he doesn't 
particularly favor the policy of raising interest rates that has been adopted by the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell. As you said, having uh, been trained by uh, Stan Fisher, one learns quite a bit about the importance of institutions in thinking about uh, economic policy. And certainly that's true now when we think about where the Federal Reserve is and some of the broader political pressures that the Fed is feeling. So on the one hand, I think the Fed is, is quite pleased with where the economy is today. Uh, the labor market is strong. The inflation rate is roughly at its 2% target. The Fed can say in a very convincing way that the economy is now performing in a way consistent with its dual mandate. And so I think that's very, very encouraging uh, for them. Uh, going forward, I think they're reasonably uh, optimistic about where we're headed. Uh, they're calling for a couple more rate hikes next year and ultimately uh, the Fed funds rate landing around 3.4%, a little bit above neutral. Uh, but the, the back and forth with President Trump that you mentioned adds a new dimension. Now, I believe uh, fervently that the Federal Reserve is an independent uh, central bank. And the Fed is not going to explicitly change its policies, certainly not make them easier in response to political pressure. Uh, but by the same token, the Fed has to be aware of and respond to and incorporate in the broader social and political environment. And I think that means the Fed's going to have to be extra careful in explaining what it's doing and describing its path. And I think being particularly careful to not make it seem like they're responding to that political pressure. And that could kick off an interesting dynamic. The other real complication for the Fed is the trade war with China. Uh, people have been concerned, and we talked to people. I frankly am not getting a clear sense of how people are even pricing this in. This morning, President Trump tweeted, just had a long and very good conversation with President Xi Jinping of China, talked about many subjects, heavy emphasis on trade, also had a good discussion with North Korea, basically indicating things were moving in a positive direction, but BlackRock's Larry Fink at a conference this morning said he doesn't think that anything is going to stop a full-blown trade war. Markets are up on President Trump's tweet. What do you think is the most likely outcome and are markets fully pricing in the potential decline? So uh, my feeling is that this trade war is going to continue uh, for a while. Having been engaged in some of this uh, international diplomacy with China, I'm not seeing the markers or the indicators that would lead me to suggest that a uh, agreement of any importance is anywhere in the offing. So my expectation is that on January 1st, the tariffs on the 200 uh, billion of Chinese imports uh, are gonna click up from 10% to 25%. Uh, broadly speaking, I think President Trump feels that he's got a winning hand partially for the reason, at uh, least that you indicate, is that the signature, the imprint of this on the U.S. economy so far has been fairly limited. Now, the, the latest correction in equity prices reflects a lot of things and maybe trade war is part of it. Uh, but I think President Trump feels politically and economically he's in a good place. He's going to press this, and he's looking for fundamental changes in the way that China does is business. Is he right? Is he right that the U.S. economy can withstand this and not be affected too, too negatively? 
On the one hand, let me say that the economy, growth, investment have absorbed this sentiment, have absorbed this better than I would have expected so far. My second point is that we haven't seen how a trade war uh, uh, impacts a modern 21st century uh, economy. And there may be through the internet and, and access to information and flexible supply chains, there may be more resilience and flexibility in these supply chains than we thought. Nevertheless, there will be a choke point, And there will be a point where uh, uh, it's hitting investment, it's hitting the markets more profoundly, and maybe even starts moving into his politics. And at that point, I think that he'll call, and it's as likely to be at some point next year, he'll have a, a summit with President Xi, he'll take what President Xi's offering, and declare it a grand victory for American capitalism. 10 seconds, do you think the Fed is gonna make a policy error? I think the Fed is nicely threading the needle between being too uh, restrictive and being too accommodative. There's always a risk, but I think uh, the Powell Fed is on a very nice trajectory. Nathan Sheets, thank you so much for being with us. Truly a pleasure. Nathan Sheets is Chief Economist for PGM Fixed Income, joining us here at the PGM headquarters. Beautiful building, uh, glass in downtown Newark. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host and colleague, Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.